Welcome to the Off Ramps Podcast. I'm your host and co-founder of the Off Ramp, Kristen. We know what it's like to feel helpless when faced with the magnitude of the world's problems. You want to do something about it, but don't know how or where to start. Well, that's why we're here. At the Off Ramp, our goal is twofold. First, to keep you informed about the ongoings in immigration, migration, and global affairs. And second, to connect you with opportunities to make a real difference in the lives of forcibly displaced people both near and far. Practical and positive change is possible. Let's work together to make it happen. This is such a good episode. I'm inclined to keep this introduction pretty short so you can just go ahead and listen to it. In it, Mom and I chat with Kim and Mark Wyatt the founders of the Welcome House Network, which offers temporary reception housing for refugees and immigrants who don't have a place to live upon arriving to the U.S. We talk about the importance of partnership in meeting the needs of newly arrived refugees and in nonprofit work in general. We also discuss how we shouldn't prioritize what we might want to do as part of that partnership, but instead learning to prioritize the most urgent needs that are presented to us. We discuss the Afghan refugee crisis in particular, and finally, Kim and Mark offer tips on how to welcome refugees, even if you have no experience overcoming cross-cultural or language barriers. So with that, I'm just going to leave you to it. Here's the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Off Ramps podcast. We are so excited to get to talk to the guests that we have with us today. I have known them, gosh, mom, when... How long have I known the Wyatts? How old was I? Uh, you would have been a preteen. Okay. Um, that's that's pretty crazy. This is really exciting for me to reconnect with them as an adult and um, an adult who is, who is working in a similar field and who has learned so much from from our guests uh, personally and professionally over the years. Uh, I've, I've teased it enough, Mom. Who are our guests? Why don't you say a little bit more about them and welcome them a little more officially? Yeah, I'm super excited to introduce to you my friends and colleagues, Mark and Kim Wyatt. Um, We have known Mark and Kim since 1997, 98, 98. We have served on the same team for uh, over 20 years, Um, served with the same organization for for 25. Yeah, y'all have been there over 25 years. We've worked in similar areas with refugees and immigrants and asylum seekers. But Mark and Kim started something very unique. It began in Canada. It's called the Welcome House. They started with one. It became something of a movement. As people began to realize that places of welcome could be created for refugees who are arriving to Canada's shores, um, other organizations, churches, individuals began to get involved. Um, After really nurturing that network and watching it blossom, um, along with our team, the decision was made for Mark and Kim to come to the United States, um, and they began a similar work in the Raleigh-Durham area of North Carolina. Now, the situation's a little bit different because we have talked about the refugees that we've ministered to in Houston. Houston has a housing market that looks very different from the East Coast. And so refugee agencies were able to procure housing for the most part. But that was not the situation that Mark and Kim found in the Raleigh-Durham area. 
And so what began as once again, just one welcome house was two welcome houses and three welcome houses. And now they have a welcome house network. And what is particularly exciting to me is that the off-ramp now is able to join them in that network here on the East Coast. Um, in fact, we have a visit this week of our first church who will be hopefully all welcoming some refugees in one of their facilities. Um, and we just are very excited about what this means for the Welcome House Network and what it means for us at the off-ramp. Well, tell us a little bit more about yourselves. I, I'm, your, your work is certainly interesting, but I, I think you, your story is interesting as well. I'd love to hear more about you, more about the Welcome House Network, and then frankly, a little bit more about how the housing situation on the East Coast is, is different enough that it makes it that much more difficult for refugees to get settled and plugged in. Well, thank you, Kristen and Nell. Um, it's an honor to have a conversation with you this morning. Um, Kim and I are born and bred in North Carolina, but don't hold that against us. But we came from families to have a, had a, deep, have a deep commitment to uh, loving neighbors as themselves. And that's just been a part of our identities. Uh, growing up, uh, we met in university at Wingate College, and um, I chased Kim around the three or four blocks of the school until I tackled her and convinced her to marry me. We we got married and then uh, put everything we owned in the back seat of a car and went off to Southeastern Seminary, um, what, 100 years ago? When was this? Yeah. And, and the thing that's so interesting to us now is we've kind of come full circle from those days. We now live basically right back in Wake Forest mm. and attend a church on the campus of Southeastern Seminary. And one of our newest ministry expressions is on the campus where they've made two three-bedroom apartments available for Afghan refugees that we're awaiting any second. So that's kind of our journey in a nutshell. One thing too, I'll just add, since we've lived so many places in our, in our lives and served in so many unique and distinct cultures, one thing that seems to be a theme that's repeating itself over and again is the idea of home. Mm. And we've come, we've come to believe that, that our vocation has been a process of understanding this, understanding um, the deep meaning of home and the deep sense of homesickness or being away from that or having that lost. And then the, overwhelming joy of being welcomed back or regaining that home. Uh, the, the doormat that says welcome home for us is a sacred symbol, not something that you really should wipe your feet on. And, and that's sort of where we are today. I'd love for you to kind of lay out for us the work of the Welcome House Network, um, what it is exactly, mom kind of alluded to it. You told us sort of the underlying reason for your work, but I'd like to know what it is that you do exactly. And, and again, why perhaps it's a little more difficult in your area than maybe some other parts of the country to do something similar. Yeah, well, the key to what we do is that we're doing it in partnership with local community refugee agencies. And so when we arrived in the Research Triangle um, back in 2014, we did not know that what we had done in Canada would be needed here. 
It wasn't until we started connecting with the agencies that we heard that when folks arrived, refugees that had been vetted through the State Department and were invited to come to the United States to start life over and find home again, that when they came, sometimes their apartments were not ready yet. And the agencies, not, not available. they were not ready yet. They were not available yeah. until sometime in the future. And so they were staying in hotels. And refugees get $975 to start life over again. One time, that's it. And so you can imagine if they're having to spend it on hotels, then that uses up their money really, really quickly. And so when we heard that, then we realized this thing we had done in Canada of providing temporary housing was needed here in the Research Triangle area. And so this is how this originally started. It started as a collaboration with one refugee agency and we rented an apartment and we housed people until they could go into their permanent home. Uh, the best practice that we follow is that we try to use homes or apartments that someone gives us so that we have a very low overhead and it's replicable. So right now we have 22 houses or apartments and all of them are being provided without needing to pay rent. Um, and that is a beautiful model so that refugees can come, they can be home, they can be wrapped in community with those from church and community that will be their friend. And that's one of the key things of Welcome House. It is about the housing, but it's about building community with people that have not only lost home, but they've lost their social system. And we get the privilege and the joy of being able to wrap. And we is the church and community at large that can do that, that can become the auntie and the uncle, the sister, the mother. And those of us who have lived abroad know how important that is and what that means when the locals wrap you in friendship and family. Mm -hmm. So housing, Kristen, was one of the things the agency said was most needed. Um, and that's not changed. That, that's universal nationwide, a shortage of affordable, low-income housing that's clean and safe. Like that's just true in general. I would add to what Kim said, we didn't come to these agencies and say, here's what we can do. We came and said, what is it that you need done? What is the most important thing in your priority list? And we heard what that was. And when we heard it, we said, well, we can join you in it. Now, there's a difference. There's a best practice there that I think is important for people that want to help others. Uh, and that is to, to be invited to come and help and not see yourselves necessarily as the answer. But once you know the need, then you can make that a broad ask. And all of us can contribute something, but maybe we can't do all of it alone. And that's, again, what Kim is saying about collaboration. We, we see ourselves in a, in a catalyst role, you know, kind of a strategic way of calling together people to sit at the same table. And, and, and together, see if they can't solve issues. So in that, we learned, too, that there was a shortage of volunteers. We put out the call for vetted volunteers from our network, as many as could hear, come and be volunteers with 
those who have the assignment of refugee resettlement with our government. The other thing is, Kim is a, an ESL teacher trainer. And when we saw that one of the agencies had had, had their ESL program uh, diminished to the point of sitting people down in front of a desktop computer to learn English on their own through Rosetta Stone, that was the plan. We was like, no, that, that's not the plan. So Kim basically brought that program back to a real ESL class that then over time has become not just a class, but over 30 classes that are in person and virtual. Mom, you've spoken to the, the need for partnership really even within the structure of the off-ramp, that's, that's how we are, are structured, designed, built as well, to not just start things uh, that are new, but to see what is being done and to plug what we plug in to what we wear and, and how we can. Can you speak to the need for partnership, but also the need, because it sounds like Welcome House <laughs> and the off-ramp both serve as a bridge between community organizations such as churches and these official organizations, the refugee agencies, can you speak to the need for partnership, but specifically the need for bridges like Welcome House Network and like the off-ramp? So Kristen, you know that you and I have said for years, it's not about uh, you or me, it's about you and me. Um, I've been doing this type of work now for well over 30 years. Um, and during that entire time, it's been very obvious we don't accomplish anything in a vacuum. We don't accomplish anything by creating silos. We have got to work in cooperation, not just with official agencies, but with the community. There's something, uh, there's a term that's used a lot called asset based reform. Would love for maybe we'll do a podcast just on that at some point. But what you do is you go into a place and you say, you ask the questions that Mark and Kim just talked about, you know, what, what do you need? What, what can we do to help? But really what you're doing in all of that, you're saying, what do you have? What do I have? What do they have? And how can we bring all of this together for the betterment of our community? And right now, um, perhaps more than in any other time in world history, our community consists of people that are not necessarily looking like the person next to them. Um, and you know, we talk a lot about refugees and I know Mark and Kim will address the Afghan situation, um, but we, we have immigrants, we have asylum seekers, we have people who are displaced for a variety of reasons, business people from other countries, international students. So we have to take into account that what our community is going to bring to the table is going to look very different than what we expect. And so what we have to do is say, okay, how do we take all of this that we have and build a better community for all of us? And what I think is beautiful about Welcome House Network and why the off-ramp is so excited to partner with them is I feel like they're doing this at a top level. As soon as somebody arrives at Welcome House, it, there's no I, attitude or idea of, oh, look what we've provided for you so that you can get on your feet or whatever. It's more a situation of, come, be with us. We welcome you. We love what you're bringing to us. We love all of the things about your culture and what we will learn from you. 
one of the things I like, and in fact, I was saying it yesterday to somebody I was talking to, when you enter into these types of relationships and partnerships, it's not that you're an agent of transformation for that other person. It's mutually transformative. You are transformed in the process. And I think that's what builds a bigger and better community. Absolutely. I completely agree with what Nell has said. And I just wanted to add one caveat. We might ask, what do you need? But I think we've learned more by listening to just the processes that exist, listening to the tiredness of the caseworkers and what they're feeling overwhelmed by, watching the caseworkers have tears when they when they walked into the first apartment that a church group had set up because they had been doing it out of without any energy at all like at you know their last thing on their list that they did when they saw it done with people offering their best to it they're like this is what we should be providing for the refugees and we can only do this with community help So that has been beautiful to see because the agencies didn't know to say we need temporary housing. They were fine using up the money at a hotel. They didn't know about that till we said, might this happen? And then just to say when it first happened, there was a lot of conversation that had to happen. It just didn't, wasn't like, oh yeah, let's do this. (laughs) You know, so things that are, that are worth doing and that, might work or might not work. Um, Take some time to just figure it out together. And I think it's the beauty of who that community partner is. We had offered similar things to other potential partners in our area and they, they weren't ready for that partnership. So we just kept knocking on doors till there was someone that was ready to have these conversations. So I think that's part of it. You may know that you want to collaborate, but it might not work with that first place you go. Kim has made a really good point where it concerns the off-ramp as well, Kristen. And I think, I think our followers who continually ask us, where are we? What are we doing? How has the work progressed here? We are at the point that Kim is talking about. We have been knocking on doors and we have been having conversations, lots of them. We're just now beginning to get some response. You know, there's a little bit of apprehension. Who's this new kid on the block? Um, What do they really want? What's their real agenda? And part of building this community is building trust. And that takes just a lot of showing up on people's doorsteps and saying, hey, this is who I am. I'd love to know more about you. How can we do this together? Um, So thanks, Kim, for making that point, because I think it's good for our listeners to know that's exactly where we're at right now. Kristen, uh, you may have a hard time asking a question to (laughs) the three of us because we are used to talking about this thing. I want to add one more thing, Kristen, and I'm going to try to listen to your question. Okay. Yeah, But I would just add, too, when you're in a role of being um, an asset to a, a situation or an opportunity, and not a competitor, that then over time that, as Neil was saying and Kim was saying, the trust factor just soars. I want to switch gears a little bit. We've kind of touched on it. Uh, all three of you, I think, have used the word uh, Afghan, uh, Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, the 
the arrival of new refugees is very much on the minds of Americans across the country and around the world right now, given the, um, the just the horrible scenes that we're seeing in the news. Very few, though, have an understanding of what it's like to leave your country and arrive in the U.S. and the challenges that those refugees face. Can you speak both to kind of what the Afghan refugees that are arriving in the U.S. are experiencing right now, what their needs are, and maybe more generally, what the greatest needs of any newly arrived refugee, um, what those needs are? Yeah, I would like to start with your last question. Perfect. What are just the general needs of anyone who arrives new as a refugee? What do they need? They mm -hmm. are completely off balance. They, it is as if they've gone to Mars. They, you know, or if we went to Mars, trying to understand how do things work. Uh, houses are different. Some have lived in very different settings that maybe they didn't have electricity indoors or plumbing indoors or blinds. Like there are so many things we don't think about. And so there are so many things that are new that, that we see our folks that who first come to Welcome House, they are overwhelmed with all the stuff they need to learn in the first five minutes. And so I think part of it is just the shock to the ongoing shock to one system. Then there's also that question of, am I safe now? And then there's that whole realizing maybe they realize that they're safe now. So then that's when really they start dealing with the trauma that they've been under and some for 20 years. And so now that they're safe, they have a home, their immediate family is safe, they're able to deal with all that trauma. And so, I mean, it's no, it's no easy go. What we see though is the resilience of people. They are delighted to go to work at that chicken plant to know that they can provide for their families now. Like it's remarkable to see, um, but there's such a huge learning curve. And what we really see is the children who come young and we're starting to see now that we've been here seven years, we're starting to see refugees that we welcomed. Now their children are graduating from high school. And that may not sound like a big deal, but that's a huge deal for children that had little to no access for education before they got here. Now they're graduating. Now they're moving on, going to community college. That is huge to see, especially um, one Afghan family in particular, they just had three of their children graduate from high school. Because what happens if you arrive as a teenager, pretty much 14 to 18 years old, you get placed in ninth grade here. And so three of them of various ages just graduated. This family that's only been here three years, they had a year ago bought their first home. And so it's beautiful to see folks have goals. And as a family, they're meeting those goals. I met my first Afghan about 23 years ago in Toronto at the dining room table of Matthew House. It was a man named Juma and his son Tariq. His son was four years old and we had just been transferred there from Thailand. And we were new to the country. We were new to a startup ministry. 
John Mark, our son, was with me that day. He's about three, Tarek's about four, and little boys are hanging out. But Jim and I couldn't speak to each other. We didn't understand each other's language. I, I never even really thought about Afghanistan, never even really knew where it was on the map. And at lunch, I passed the bread basket to him. And I had a, a formative personal experience. It was as if the time just stopped for a second, like in a movie. And I, I had an internal message that I felt came from, from God. And it was something like this, Kristen. I brought this man here. And I brought you here. He's a father. You're a father. Love him. It changed my whole life. Afghans have been getting the crap knocked out of them their whole life. We just saw something this month where a country who went to sleep during the longest war we've ever had suddenly woke up and started pointing fingers at who caused this crisis. Who, who, who caused those young men to grab onto the wheels of an airplane? Who, who caused all these families to be torn to pieces? But Afghans have been trying to live at peace their whole life. And those that are 20 years and younger have never known different than they are experiencing right now but they don't want what they're experiencing right now. For those that were given an opportunity to leave the country, they have. They've gone all over the world, just like so many others from other parts of the world who are getting the crap knocked out of them. Excuse me for using that language this morning. But they've been coming to the United States as invited guests by our government, and welcomed by community organizations like Off-Ramp for a long time. And we've had the privilege over the past several years to become personal friends with many who call us uncle and aunt and watch them succeed in life, a life here. And what I heard 23 years ago, I hear every hour now. that they are here because God has brought them and we are here because God placed us at an intersection. And this can be the greatest moment of our faith life or our human life. If we can see that neighbor and realize the intersection that we're standing at and not look the other ways, if it's somebody else's job or some other neighbor's responsibility, but ours and 99.9% of the time, it transforms me into a better person. Well, hospitality really isn't radical, is it? Hospitality is sharing. And hospitality is what all of our international friends already do with an A+. 
And that is one of the things that we are learning from our international friends. Yeah, I is think that's what it, it really yeah. means to be hospitable. If you want to understand, we can never <laughs> meet what they provide to us. Just go to any any newcomer's home, business, a millionaire, someone who just got off a plane as a refugee. Go to any person's home from the other culture, the other person, and knock on the door, and they will invite you in to come and have tea. And an example of that happened two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, a family of five from Afghanistan moved into their new home that was furnished by some uh, of church friends of ours in Virginia. That church provided the hot meal for that family so that when they got there, they had something to eat. And do you know what that family said to this pastor and his family that were there? They said, please sit down at this table with us and let's eat together. That impacted that pastor. And he has actually written an article about it and said his life will forever be changed because here came this family and they shared all that they had with his family. Mm -hmm. One of the terms that Mark and Kim have used on numerous occasions is invited guests. And I think that that's one of the misconceptions that we have about refugees. And that's a question that I'm sure Mark and Kim get it. It's one that we got often through the work we did in Houston and through the off-ramp. Um, there, is, there is a mix-up in the idea of the difference between an immigrant and between a refugee. Um, and, and we misuse the word a lot. We call a lot of people who are displaced refugees. But refugees, the definition, are people who are invited to our country, been vetted by the UNHCR. They are legally here. They have the legal right to work, the legal right to establish themselves and to build a life. And after a certain period of time, um, they then are invited to take the, the path to citizenship. People also think that refugees live forever and a day on the, the American government. And that's, that's just not true. They, they have a very limited amount of resources for a very limited time. Um, when we moved overseas, we were given all the time we needed to get the language, to get the kids established, um, to figure out what we were doing. Here, once a refugee family arrives, you get three, maybe six months, and you've got to be able to fly on your own. Um, so to be in relationship with folks that have this kind of uh, stamina and um, the ability to persevere, that's why it's mutually transformative, because most of us have never had to go through anything like that. So I think an important part of all this is to begin to lay aside some of our misconceptions about who a refugee is. One of the things, um, Kristen, that came out in our latest update, what to do when you don't know what to do. One of the things that you can do is just learn, read and learn and understand who refugees are and then how you can be engaged um, as, as a friend in their lives. You know, I think something that I often get asked or that often is um, comes up in conversation with people who are exploring what it might 
look like to get more involved in the the arrival of refu uh, of refugees to the United States is that it's really intimidating for those who have never done it before. That overcoming cross-cultural barriers can feel impossible to those who have never sat down with someone whose language they don't speak or um, whose culture they are entirely unfamiliar with. For someone listening to this or who has thought about perhaps getting involved to a greater extent, but who is understandably afraid of that, un that big question mark, that unknown, what advice would you have for them? Well, what I would say is um, see if you can pull back from your life experience a time where you were alone and a stranger introduced you to a grocery store that you could buy groceries at a good price or someone in a class that you attended was the first one that befriended you across from the other desk and made you feel welcome in the class or you had a flat tire and you're by yourself and um, you know somebody stopped to help you fix the tire. If you can step out of your own shoes, Kristen, and step into the other person's shoes for a minute and not look at it from your fear or your concern or how you might do or not do with the relationship, but just how that might be received. If you can step over there, I think that can help push us over there to take that risk. But in, but in every case, it's going to ultimately be down to a matter of risking something. And so what, what's the worst thing that can happen, right? If you risk, with someone that you can't speak the language with, then you might have a lot of giggles or pointing fingers or talking loud because sometimes people think if you talk loud enough, they understand the language better. I don't know. What's the worst can happen is that you can realize that you can make friends with someone without being able to talk. Um, it might be awkward for a minute. It could be a silence there and not fill it up with words. You might have to actually look into the person's eyes for a minute, see them instead of hear them. Uh, worst case scenario is it's just awkward, really, in my opinion. You're, there's nothing that's going to happen except the possibility of something wonderful happening. And I would say a first step for women, women, when you see a covered woman at the market, or at the mall, or at some store, or on the sidewalk, just look her in the eye and say hello. And you can say salam. And regardless of what country she's from, she will know that you just gave her a greeting and you just went towards her by using salam instead of hello. And I think it's those small steps. The second thing I would say is find somebody in your network who already has a cross-cultural friendship and just go with them. And that's one of the biggest things that I think I probably do is invite people to go with me. And when they go with me to teach English as a second language, or they go with me to have tea at someone's house, or right now they go with me to drop something off a new ESL book at someone's door. And just that hello and how eager our international friends are to make new friendships, then that helps all of that just lessens and people can't wait to connect again. So I say risk, go try it. Yes, it's awkward, but smiles 
across any language and culture. And even giggling crosses any language and culture. And when we get back to when we can hug women, hug women. Yes, yes. Men, you can hug men, but don't do opposite genders. That is, that is a cultural faux pas. Do not do that. I want to share a story that is an exact illustration of what you advise people to do, Kim. Um, there was a covered woman in um, my neighborhood. She, I, I live in a, a town in a series of townhomes, and she kind of lives just across the way. But I had seen her, and we'd kind of wave from time to time. But one day on a beautiful afternoon, she was out in her patio, and I was my had my windows down, and I drove into our neighborhood. And all I said, I said a little bit more than salam. I said, assalamu alaikum, which you can still say salam. That's fine. Um, and she, I mean, her, her whole body language changed. She didn't just smile. She physically opened up. She was elated. The very next day, she delivered food to my home. And that was a big deal because I have two big dogs and she is not a fan of dogs. And so for her to deliver food to my home really indicated overcoming fear on her end. And so for a while, it was just, I gave her a meal. She gave me a meal, et cetera. Eventually now I've noticed she, she goes on long walks and I, I said, we should walk sometime during COVID. There's not much else you can do. And so now we go on long walks and it all started with just saying hi and smiling and acknowledging her, um, especially in a period where a lot of people don't and they're afraid by her co- uh, of her covering. Uh, and so truly, it really did just start with hello and and little knowledge of where she's from. But it turns out she is from Afghanistan. She's been here a number of years, uh, but and her, her she has more family here, so she's rooted very much so. But but she doesn't have any other friends in the neighborhood. Um, even though she's lived here a while, I'm the only one who's ever said hi. And, and so in a, in, in a way that expressed a desire for relationship and for knowing, uh, it really can just start with that. I have one last question for you guys. I always ask this question at the end of our episodes, although this, in, this one in particular has brought me more hope than many of the ones that we've, uh, we've had. But where do you find the hope? Because there is a lot of sadness. I mean, we've talked of murder and rape and war and the loss of home, which is really the loss of any sense of grounding. And um, where do you find hope when you become overwhelmed with the reality of their lives before and even after they have arrived, when you are faced with the atrocities that are very real in this world, what do you reach for? Where do you find hope? The words of the holy book ring more true now than ever in my life. And so I do see the holy words as sacred and um, hope-filled. And those words oftentimes jump out of the mouths of people that don't believe as I do. And that's how I know that God is present in all things, not just in what thing I bring. One of those hope-filled words came from an Afghan that we interviewed in 2017. At the end of the interview, he says, there are more good, or there is more good in the world than there is bad. And that's coming from a man who lived in the bad. And what, that word has said to me over and over again as I've 
heard the video played again recently is there's more good in the world than there is bad, but people have experienced a lot of bad. I haven't. I'm a white guy and I've not experienced very much bad, but I have neighbors that have different color skin. I have neighbors that are different gender than me. I have neighbors who have a different perspective of who they love than I do what they think and believe their political. I have a lot of differences in neighbors around me that have experienced more bad than I have. But generally through all the voice of the neighbor or the Afghan refugee, I hear the same thing, that there is more good, that good wins, that love is stronger than hate, that peace is the hope of all people. And that gives me hope, no matter what I see on TV or what I hear said around me, especially when I see it in the eyes of children who have just recently come with their parents from some faraway, tore up place. And those innocent eyes, I look in their eyes and I see these children will never know the bad their parents have known. They will know the good. We have a friend that during this past month, she's been interviewed by the local TV station and she didn't want um, anyone to know who she is. So you can hear her voice. It doesn't sound quite like her voice, but she's sharing about her Afghan experience. And she says, my entire life, she's about 50 years old. She said, someone else has occupied my country. He says, my entire life. And she says, we just want peace. And that really stood out to me from that whole interview um, as she was sharing that part, we just want peace. Isn't that what the world wants? The world wants peace. Then the same woman who has nonstop her family that's still in Kabul calling her asking for her to help them get out of there. She talks a lot about the Taliban. And we have talked quite a bit about praying that the hearts of the Taliban would be softened and that they would be made as white as snow. Amen. That's, I mean, that this woman who's lived in a country or her family has lived in a country their whole lives under occupied by other foreign people. And she is willing to pray for her enemy. I think that is a beautiful word of hope. Thanks for listening to the Off Ramps podcast. If you were inspired to act during this conversation, you can find us and learn more at theofframp.org or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Helplessness and hopelessness do not have to define your future or the world's. Become a change maker today.